0: One of the most difficult things that I have to deal with as a pastor is the, uh, the destruction of souls because of the rejection of the church of Jesus Christ. As you get older and you have a lot of years under your belt, uh, you can go through and you can tick off names, name after name after name. You can tick off sometimes families, sometimes individuals who have gotten to the point in life where they have decided that they're going to be homeless. Some of you have been on mission trips and you've gone into uh, cities, Toronto, Chicago, New York, and you've worked with the homeless. And one of the things that you've found when you've gone there is that there are many people who are on the streets, not because of a series of, of, of bad luck, but rather because of choice. And that the streets have many people who have found the intimacy of a home. To be too great for them and consequently have left their families, their wives, their children and have chosen a life of absolute irresponsibility and uh, complete anonymity on the street of a major city where they comfort themselves typically through drugs, whether usually the drug of choice is alcohol, cheap wine. And so society looks at these people and thinks, well, you know, if we put shelters together and people the shelters with people of compassion and, you know, that we can improve their lives. But what you find out is that there are many men who will not have their lives improved. And they won't because they've made a decision that they cannot any longer tolerate intimacy. It seems wacko. What could be more beautiful than children and a wife? What could be more uh, encouraging than to get up in the morning and and find that you're not alone with yourself? (laughs) You know, but that God has given you little ones who love you unconditionally. And God has given you a wife who is willing to forgive you. And you say, well, many of these men didn't have children and didn't have such wives and i say well even a bad wife is better than no wife it is not good that a man be alone after all isn't that what you know the whole reason everybody's on e harmony you know god wasn't stupid when he said it's not good for the man to be alone right and you say well yeah but your marriage is good but you don't know what a real bad marriage is well i don't want to get into that this morning i simply want to explain to you that many of us make choices in our lives to reject intimacy. And often it's not really because of the sins of our wives. It's because of our own sin and the humiliation of having to admit it to other people and having to ask their forgiveness. If you look at those men who are out on the streets and cities who are there not because of bad luck, but because of choices they have made, I guarantee that you are going to find men who are extremely proud and who have lost the resilience and pliability and humility and meekness to forgive and to be forgiven. It's very interesting that Rachel and David Hill's daughters are here today. Because I remember David from a previous church I served, where one morning in the Lord's Supper, David was overwhelmed with his own sinfulness. And off in a corner of the sanctuary, as we ate together, David wailed with tears. And I remember the next elders meeting that week, where the elders berated me for allowing a man to cry audibly during a Lord's Supper. And, you know, I thought at the time, I could not imagine a thing That would be more appropriate than than cheers and applause and tears during the Lord's Supper. What has happened to our eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper when someone expressing grief audibly is offensive and must be silenced? This last week, Stephen and Sebra and Taylor and I went out to a conference in Boulder, Colorado of the Acts 29 Network. It's a group of churches that are exploding around the country. They have good doctrine. They have a firm commitment to eldership, real eldership in the church, and specifically male eldership. They believe that the truth about God calling men to leave is one of the most evangelistic truths of Scripture. And so they lead with that truth. They don't hide it and bring it in afterwards. They have sermons. One of the sermons... uh, that some of the men there were telling me about it. was a recent sermon at their mother church where the preacher preached for two hours on church discipline. And he said that, not the pastor, but the people that had listened told me that it was fantastic. It was just what they needed. They were all so grateful for it. Well, what's the difference between that church and other churches in this country? Well, the difference is that everybody in that church is young. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, people that are young have not been inoculated to the authority of Scripture and have not grown crusty with age and have not been confirmed in their pride. People who are young are still very aware of their sins. These are people that have been involved in homosexuality and fornication and adultery and drugs and pornography on the internet because a lot of them work in the computer industry in Seattle. And so to them, they've not gotten to the point where they think that God has made them without sin and they don't have to ask for forgiveness and give it anymore. And they haven't gotten to the point where they think a sermon shouldn't cut. They haven't gotten to the point where they think church should be some place where you go up and you you, you don't know the people in the pews next to you and you take communion and, and it's copacetic if you heard that word. It's absolutely squeaky clean like your shirt when you get it back from the laundry. It smells good. It's crisp. See? No wrinkles. These guys' lives are wrinkles. You know, they're skateboarders. They've got tattoos. They're pierced. And they're sinners. And you couldn't convince them that that isn't the case. And so, guess what? A church like that sits for two hours. And finds a sermon on church discipline to be exactly what they need. <laughs> and then there are others. There are others who, uh, you know, I've told you before, nationally known pastor is a friend of mine. Talking to him about a situation in his church, he says, you know, Tim, he says, Over the years, I've learned that if you confront people, they get angry and leave. And so I don't do it anymore. And those are your choices. And if you think you don't have a choice, you haven't driven around this country and seen all the churches that there are for you to choose from. And you can choose a church where it's copacetic. Uh, where you don't have to know the people in the pews and you don't ever have to ask their forgiveness and you certainly don't ever have to be forgiven because after all, you don't sin anymore anyhow. You know, think of some of you in your marriages. When's the last time that you asked your husband to forgive you? I mean, really forgive you, not, well, honey, I'm sorry. But really, honey, I'm sorry, I failed. And so, you know, I've been thinking so much about this text Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. You remember a few months ago, we came to the fruit of the Spirit. In the first sermon on the fruit of the Spirit, do you remember I did something that made a number of you unhappy? I spent the whole sermon talking about Fruit, contextually, in all of Scripture. Remember that? And I talked about all, all through Scripture, the theme is fruit is good and it's a gift of God. And one of the things I talked about was the gift of fruitfulness in the marriage bed. Having children. You know, the gurgling that we hear over here. Alright? That that's good. And that you can't come to the fruit of the Spirit until you have this overarching theme of the good of fruitfulness burn into your brain and you affirm it. And a number of you were upset because what you said was, look, it says the fruit of the Spirit. And we're not talking about babies and we're not talking about calves and sheep and we're not talking about grain. But I'm going to do the same thing again today. I'm going to say to you that the context for this little section of verses that you're looking at here is absolutely imperative for you to understand. And until you understand the context for it, you will have absolutely no commitment to obeying it. If you don't see the church as the household of faith, the pillar and foundation of the truth, and if your principal concern in the church is to protect your pride, this verse has absolutely nothing to say to you. Not, nothing. Nothing. You know, it's it's my friend, Tim. Over the years, I've confronted people and I've learned they get angry and they leave and so I don't confront them anymore. And that is the church in America today. You say, yeah, but it's such hard work. And I say, yeah, and that's the reason we have to confront each other gently and we have to pray lest we ourselves also fall. You know, if you tell me it's hard, we can work on it. <laughs> But if you tell me you hate it, and this is negative, and you're not going to listen to it, and you don't want a church where there's a sermon for two hours on church discipline, here's what I have to say to you. You do not know Jesus Christ, and you are not living the Christian life. You say, Oh, well, what about all those people that are in churches where there's no community and no discipline? And I say, They're not churches. You say, well, what are they? I say they're parachurch organizations because that's what parachurch organizations specialize in. They specialize in not disciplining people. And why? Well, because, Tim, I've over the years confronted many people and I've learned that they get angry and leave and so I don't confront them anymore. After all, if McDonald's gave you poison every time you drove in, do you think you'd keep giving them your money? Parachurch organizations are very good at getting your money. It would be very interesting to do a survey right now of how much money is given in this church to parachurch organizations. This last week, one of the people speaking at this conference was a parachurch organization. You say, well, how does an organization speak? I say, well, you give yourself a name other than Tim Bailey. You say, uh, you know, um, Important Pastor Incorporated. 501c3 organization, right? That's me. All right? I give myself a name that has nothing about Tim Bailey and then I I write you and tell you about the important ministry I'm having around this country. (laughs) Because after all, I'm a very important man. Me. Me. Not you. Me. I mean, you understand. Okay? And then I send out letters that tell you all the important things I'm doing. Not here, but there. All right? And, And of course, I can do this. You know, you know my teaching and preaching ministry extends to the far reaches of this earth. Why, just last year, I was in such and such, and on the plane I was talking to such and such, and so and so called me, and and by the way, I was invited to be a participant at such and such a meeting where muckety-muck and muckety-muck and Grand Poobah were present. And really, you ought to give me money. And you say to me, well, do you have any sheep that you care for? I say, sheep? Nasty, dirty, dumb sheep. I have a ministry. (laughs) A ministry. Uh, Teaching and preaching ministry. I don't have time for dirty, stupid sheep. And you say to me, well, do you have any board of elders that says no to you? Well, I have a board. Well, who's on your board? Well, my wife. And my cousin. And my... First executive vice president. Huh. So you don't have any dirty sheep. And you don't have any elders board that tells you no. What do you do exactly? I am... uh, You know, I don't have to keep going, do I? And so the church has become uh, an entrepreneurial organization That needs managers and administrators and vision casters. And you know, when I look for a vision, it just like screams at me every time I open the Bible. And how about Galatians 6, 1 and 2 for a vision? Can you be on board with that? Can that be our vision? And can I cast that vision to you? Or do you need to go out onto the street, get your bottle of wine and deaden yourself So that you don't have to be sinned against and forgive. And you don't have to ask forgiveness to those that you have sinned against. You know, over the years, I can tick off person after person, family after family, that has chosen to harden their heart against Jesus Christ. They have rejected encouragement. They have rejected correction. They have rejected rebuke. I've been sitting with families where after hundreds and hundreds of hours where felonies were committed and the elders decided that they weren't going to go to the law, finally, the husband and wife are called into an elders meeting. And the wife, after hundreds of hours, the elders have decided that they have to rebuke this wife for for this thing she did that was a real felony. And that woman sat there, and she defied the elders' board. She argued with every single statement that was made by any of our elders. And some of you know who our elders are, and these are not men that you want to pick a fight with, not because they're all strong and loud like me, but because they're meek and gentle and humble. And she defied them. And that's not unusual. I'd say that we've had probably somewhere around three individuals and families a year who after hundreds of hours, sometimes I, I can think of one case, 14 years of constant work with an individual. An individual has been loved and cared for and given thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of the church money. And then... He kisses it off. He kisses it off. What do you think is the future for that man? What do you think Scripture means when it says, hand him over to Satan so that his soul may be saved? Do you think it's a little thing for the church to discipline you? And do you think if you reject that discipline that it's, that, that, that it's a small thing, it's inconsequential, that it won't have an impact on you and your wife and your children and your grandchildren. And you say, well, you know, most churches in this country don't do discipline. Tim, over the years i found that when you confront people, they get angry and they leave. And so I don't do it anymore. I say, well, you know, if you were wandering in the wilderness with the Jews, would you have been one of those people that was crying out for the blood of Moses? You wanted to put Miriam up? You know, would you have been one of those people that made peace with the Gibeonites without prayer? Would you have been one of those people that hid the treasure under the floor of your tent? I mean, if you look at the Israelites, you see them constantly as a whole tribe saying, we want to go back to Egypt. They don't want to depend on the Lord. They don't want to live in the context that He has chosen for them, wandering in the wilderness, dependent on Him for the pillar of fire and the cloud, dependent on Him for manna, dependent on Him for water, and then for water that you can drink, dependent on Him for leadership. And they gave Him some guy like the Apostle Paul, who's really not much of anything, the super apostles said. Some guy like Moses, who's the meekest man who ever lived. And Really, I mean, how impressive is that? You know, we want a guy more like Donald Trump. Now, I know none of you want Donald Trump, right? <laughs> that's too far the other direction. You know, some man that's like dignified, but a real leader like Colin Powell. Well, maybe you don't like Colin Powell. I don't know who you like, but you know, you get the point. You know, somebody that's not meek, somebody that's not short and squinny eyed like the Apostle Paul, you know, somebody that's dynamic and charismatic, you know, somebody that can command attention, you know. And think, absolutely everything that the Jews complained about in the wilderness was God's exercise regimen. Those were His personal training decisions for them. Some of you have personal trainers, right? Okay, what do they tell you to do? Take it easy for a while, you know? The flab's going to stay there. In another week, it'll still be there. Take it easy for a while. Is that what they say to you? No, they put you under discipline. They have you get on... The treadmill, they have you swim, they have you watch your diet, they weigh you. Can you imagine if elders handled you the way your personal trainer? You pay him to do! You think, he's mad. Yeah, I am mad. I'm very mad. You submit to the indignities of a doctor without thinking about it because you make your body into an idol. You submit to the indignities of personal trainers and they are indignities and disciplines because your body is an idol, but you will not submit to the slightest discipline from your elders because you don't care about your soul. That's why your body is an idol and you don't love your soul and you don't love the souls of your children. Your children are put under discipline. You reject it. Why? Because you despise the souls of your children. That's why. And so you go out and you find a church where nobody will ever tell you that your children aren't good-looking and above average and your wife isn't handsome. You know? Well, whatever. I don't listen to him anymore because he's been perverted. Garrison Keeler. A number of years ago, I told you as a congregation, most of you weren't here, I told you... If you think that we don't know how to build a megachurch, you're crazy. We know how to do it. Years ago, Tim, I learned that if you confront people, they get angry and they leave, and so I don't confront them anymore. (laughs) Now listen. Listen, brothers and sisters, look at me. Look at me. Do I love you? Do I love you? Answer me. Do you know I love you? Do you think that the purpose of this church is to pay me so that I can have a cushy life and not have to work hard? Do you think that's why I'm doing this? Do you think that's why Stephen Baker is doing this? Do you think that's why David Carell is doing this? Do you think your elders are on ego trips and they want a position that's perky so that they can sit back and make decisions about money and schedules? Is that what Lawrence Howell is about? It's not. Is that what Wayne Huck is about? It's absurd. Tim Wagner, you know, Tim Wagner's always putting himself forward trying to get a perky's position so he can oppress you. I mean, it's laughable. You know, the only person you could possibly make that case about is me. I mean, really, is this true. You all agree? I'm the best candidate to make this case in our Board of Elders. David Canfield? It's a joke. Stand up. Would you please stand up? Turn around and look at them. This is your elder. You know? So what? Because David is such an oppressive egotist, he simply wants to have a perky position. And to sho- shove your nose in your failures while he doesn't admit any of his own, that you need to go out into the streets of Chicago and get a cheap bottle of wine and live in a doorstep? I mean, that's what the equivalent of megachurches is. It's people that are drinking cheap bottles of wine and live in doorsteps and show up, and the sacrament isn't a meal, it's McDonald's at best. You drive through the window and they hand it out through the window to you and you don't have to be next to anybody that stinks. Nobody with wrinkled skin. It's just the sacrament. And sometimes you don't even know it's showing up and there are no warnings and you don't have to go and apologize to anybody before you take it. And yet, this is the context for the meal in Scripture. This is why Jesus says if you're going to the altar and you remember that somebody has ought against you, lay your diff down. Don't go to the altar. First go and make things right with them. This is why Scripture says that if you come to the Lord's Supper without properly discerning the Lord's body, this is why some of you are sick and others are dying. You go into a megachurch and they say, oh, you know, that's what those old fogies used to think. People that were in a pre scientific mindset. You know, back before we had, you know, the the enlightenment. Back when people had some sense of, you know, a connection between God and sickness and death. But we know now it's a matter of microbes and bacteria and and, and viruses and genetics. And, And nobody gets sick and dies because they come to the Lord's table and eat and drink unworthily without properly discerning the Lord's body. But of course, they never say that because that would be too impious. They just live it. Do you understand? They live it. Because there is no confrontation. You know, Tim, many years ago, I used to confront people, but they got angry and left, and so I don't confront them anymore. And this is an excellent, top reputation, published, godly, evangelical church. This is not your normal run-of-the-mill kind of, and I'm not going to say anything negative about any particular association. And so you have your choices, you know. You, you can eat at McDonald's. Then I was out working at First President Boulder, and guess where you ate there? You didn't eat at McDonald's, but you sure as heck didn't get into my home. At First President Boulder, everybody took you out to the restaurant. Often it was the restaurant called The Good Earth. Sort of a crunchy kind of Mother Earth, yin-yang, back to nature, no sugar, cosmic karma kind of place. All right? And there you would have fellowship and intimacy, but of course, nobody cooked. Nobody set the table. Nobody forget to put the salt and pepper on the table. Nobody chose the seats. Nobody cleaned up. Nobody cleared the table. Nobody hung around at the table for three hours talking and moved over into the living room and laid down on the floor. Again, Better than McDonald's, but not the church. Not the church. Why do you think Scripture says over and over again that we are to show and to practice hospitality? That we're to do it without complaining. It actually says that. Do you think that taking somebody out to eat at the good earth is hospitality? Well, it is. It's better than McDonald's. I mean, you feel real ripped off if they said hop in and they drove you through the drive-in window at McDonald's, handed you the hamburger, took you back to church, dropped you off and said, have a good lunch. Right? I mean, that would just be completely perverse. So the good earth is halfway, isn't it? But I mean, you go into a home, a home where there can be bad cooking. And there can be messy floors, carpet that has stains. In fact, you, as a guest, might stain their carpet. you know? And it's like, you know, that's not for me. You know, I've learned, I, I, I know myself, and I've learned that I'm not the kind of person that does well in that kind of context. You know, it just makes me nervous. My children aren't well-behaved. I don't want anybody to see that my children aren't well-behaved. Hey, here's the truth for you. There are no children in this church that are well-behaved. None. Stephen and Zebra's kids are a pain. I was in a car with them this week where they dealt with the discipline issues of those children while they were at relatives because mom and dad were gone. Here's an idea. Taylor is a whiner. Is this true, Taylor? Yeah, he admits it's true. And he can be a real pain, and sometimes his siblings don't like him at all. Joseph is making a decision whether or not he's willing to put up with churches because he's seen me. And that's not commending Joseph. Joseph. You either walk by faith or you don't walk by faith. You don't sit and and, and wonder what it's going to be like. Now, he might tell me that I'm unfair to him, but I hope you know Joseph and you know that he's a sinner. Now, why would I choose my own children? Well, because, you know, you have a tendency to put the pastor on a pedestal and say his kids are all above average and, you know, they don't have sins. Well, my kids have sins. And you all know I have sins. You might think Mary Lee doesn't, but she does. So what is it that requires you to go out onto the street and buy a bunch of cheap wine and die to any expectation of being a member of the household of faith? What is it? It's the same thing always. It's pride. You know what God says about pride? He says that He resists the proud. And as I've told you many times, you do not want to have God as an opponent because there's no question who will win. You say, well, speak to us about faith. And I say, okay, I'll speak to you about faith. You are saved from your sin. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, all of it is is gone as far as the east is from the west. And you know what? Immediately, God saves you to the church where you will continue to sin and where God will be pleased to work through brothers and sisters in Christ and for those who are spiritual, who will gently lead you back onto the right path. And if you reject what God saves you to and only want to talk about what God saves you from, you will not be saved. Because the church is the ark of God. It is the ark of the covenant. And you nowhere find in Scripture anybody saved to individuality except one person. Who is it? The Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch had no church. He was returning to Ethiopia. Wherever that was. And you know what the Ethiopian eunuch did as soon as he got back to Ethiopia? he planted the church and he taught and he led he was an elder and if you read all of the other churches in the book of acts what you'll find over and over again is that they pointed elders in every city did you know that elders it's an office in fact let me read to you what it says In Acts chapter 14, it says this, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, now listen to this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, what did they do? They appointed elders. Where? In every church. Who was in the church? All those who believed. If there were believers who came to the Lord and they didn't go to a church, what were they? They weren't believers. Do you know that the early fathers had this saying? The saying was, he who will not have the church as his mother may not have God as his father. And do you know that the Reformers, 14 centuries later, repeated that and commended it. He who will not have the church as his mother may not have God as his Father. What is it to be an individual Christian cut off? It's to be In great danger, can people who reject the church be saved? Yes. And what you'll find again, all through church history, is that the Reformers and the church in the first 14th century say yes, but it's an extraordinary work of God and it's not the norm. And yet, you look at what goes on in churches in this country today, and it's precisely what the Reformers said disqualified the Roman Catholic church from being called a church. Because why? Well, they argued over it and they said, what are the marks of the church? These things have to be there. The sine qua non. They have to be there or you don't have a church. And what were the marks? The Reformers all agreed the marks were two. The right preaching of the Word of God and the right administration of the sacraments. Many Reformers added a third, the right practice of church discipline. I think it doesn't matter because I think you can't have the right administration of the sacraments unless you have some practice of accountability and discipline. I mean, you get what I'm saying. Now let me ask you the question. In the Middle Ages, did Rome have the right preaching of the Word of God and the right administration of the sacraments? They didn't. So Rome anathematized the Reformers in the Council of Trent and they've never taken it back and they anathematized precisely the biblical doctrines that the Reformers said that required them to separate themselves from the Roman Catholic Church. And the Reformers on their part anathematized the Roman Catholic Church. And they said, This is not a true church. And now what do we have? Well, now we have a bunch of fat Westerners who are complacent, who have lost any sense of discipline in their lives, and they're going back to Rome and they're saying, Well, you know, there really wasn't that much at stake at Rome. And so we listened to a parachurch leader at this conference, known nationally, invited all over the place, who said, Luther was wrong. They didn't blush. Luther was wrong. Galatians is not about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Stephen, a direct quote? Direct quote. Now, you can either think, well, you know, I better go back and read Galatians. You can think, you know, is this guy fat? And where does he live? And what's his time period? And you know, yes, that's ad hominem, and that's what you have to do. Why would you say that Luther was wrong and that Galatians is in fact about racial conflict and not about justification by faith? Why would you say that? Well, it would help you to know that you're an American, that that you come from Wheaton, and that you've grown tired with all of the many tribulations through which we will enter the kingdom of God. And so, what's one of the tribulations? Well, having to deal with the fact that you know we have this nasty four centuries of saying no to the Roman Catholic Church, and yeah, you know, some of my best friends are Roman Catholics. You know, some of my best friends are black. Some of my best friends are homosexuals. Some of my best friends. And so, reproach, ma, reproach, reproach, because we're all fat, we're all lazy. None of us want discipline. And wouldn't it be better if we, could, you know, can't we all just get along? And it's what Alan Bloom said in the closing of the American Mind. The only value left in America is, hey, can't we all just get along? That's it. Get along with God. Do you want to get along with God? No, 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 not really. i just like to get along with the homosexuals and with the blacks and with, you know, Arminians and Roman Catholics and Mormons. That would be helpful and Orthodox and, and Muslims. I mean, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. Can we all just get along? <laughs> and listen, brothers and sisters, I love you. This is why I'm going to say this to you. Okay? I love you. God is holy. And God has put together an ark to carry you through the waves. And that ark will force you to grow in holiness. And if you reject that ark, and of course you can reject it by going out on the street and drinking cheap wine, or you can reject it by finding an ark that has no dung, and be glad I used the word dung. Not one man that was at this conference would have used the word dung. Okay? So, thank me afterwards. Okay? And where none of the animals reproduce and none of them calve and there isn't any blood. Okay? Okay? Because that is to reject the ark of God. If you choose a church where you will not have to ask forgiveness, where the preacher will never tell you that you will enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations, where he doesn't point out the tribulations, but rather he tries to do things in such a way that you don't ever have to face your sin and others' sins. and You don't have to grow in holiness. And it doesn't... Your, your growth in holiness doesn't come from sitting next to people that have wrinkles that stink, whose children are as dissipating as your children, where you don't have to apologize and ask forgiveness, where you're not challenged at the table to examine yourself. You know what You know what the church father Augustine, called his autobiography? They called it confessions. You know what that means? That means that the whole thing was his confession of sin. And, and, and how about Luther? Luther had so many sins. If you think my language can be bad at times, you know that it, 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 at a scholarly conference for Bible scholars, one man gave an entire paper on Luther's use of the German word dreck. Now, you might guess what the German word Dreck means. It's roughly equivalent to the word that Paul uses when he describes the value of his good works. Luther used to get depressed and discouraged, which is a sin. It's faithlessness. One morning he came down. I've told you this before. He came down and he found that Katie, his godly wife, was dressed all in black. He said, Are you going to a funeral? She said, no. He said, well, then why are you dressed in black? Why are you mourning? And she said, well, because the way you've been going around, I assume that God is dead. And so I'm mourning His passing. What about Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards went into a church pastored by his maternal grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. And Solomon Stoddard had what was called a hyper halfway covenant. He, he took the halfway covenant of the normal colonial America and he, he bumped it up a notch so that he believed that the Lord's Supper was a converting ordinance and that people ought to be able to bring their children to be baptized and they ought to be able to come to the Lord's Supper without having any personal testimony of, of, of having been born again. And can you see how that kind of compromise is is so convenient for elders and pastors. We we don't have to sit down and examine to see if your confession of faith is believable anymore. We don't have to be concerned about such things because, after all, the Lord's Supper is a converting ordinance. Do, Do you understand this? And so you remove the standards. And what I always say is, do you realize the sacraments are given to us to make a distinction between the people of God and those who don't belong to Him? But there's no distinction in that halfway covenant. Jonathan Edwards, I'm not talking about Stoddard, I'm talking about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards went into that church, served for about two years under his maternal grandfather, then served for approximately 21 years under that compromise, and finally it became too much for him to bear. And he said to his elders and to his church, I cannot continue to live with this compromise. And so he said from now on, People who come to the Lord's Supper and bring their children to be baptized, but particularly the Lord's Supper, they need to be examined. And they said, oh, you're on an ego trip. You proud man. You're trying to be the Pope of this church. You think that's true? No, Jonathan Edward loved his sheep. And he was concerned that many of them were going to be led straight to hell by being told and and, and having access to the sacraments without any examination of the work of the Holy Spirit in them, whether they had true faith. You know what? Jonathan Edwards got fired over that issue. There were a few other contributing things. He got fired. Now you say, what a hero. I'm glad he stood up. But do you know how many years it took him to stand up? How many years? Come on. Over 20. Do you think that for those 20 years his conscience was clean? I don't know this, but I'm convinced that the answer is no. What about me? I went into a church that had women pastors and elders. I knew it was unbiblical. I went in. I knew it was wrong. So finally, some eight and a half years later, our elders are sitting around and they're talking about leaving the denomination because now homosexuality is the next step. And by the way, if you follow the PCUSA, you know that they took drastic steps in the direction away from God this last week at their General Assembly. And so the elders are discussing how to leave this denomination. They're agreed, we need to leave. And in the middle of it, they say, if, if the denomination was this bad, why did you go in? They're looking at their pastor and asking them that. So you know what I did? My mother was knitting behind the elders in the basement of the church because it was such an important meeting. And I thought, and she thought, and they thought it would be fitting for her to be there. She hasn't said a word. She's not in the inner circle. They say, why did you come in? And I said, well, why don't you ask my mother that question? Mrs. Bailey, why did Tim come into this denomination when he knew the spiritual condition that it was in? And as my mother is knitting, she doesn't miss a stroke, she says he wanted security. (laughs) Okay, that's me. So, why should every great leader of the church have splashed all over the pages of Scripture? You remember Peter? Blankety blank blank. I don't know the man to an intimidating teenage girl. Remember when Jesus is on trial? You know, why should you have Scripture filled with men like Abraham and Moses and and Peter and Paul? And why should you have all of church history filled with men like Augustine and Luther and Calvin who executed? Servetus, he participated in it because he didn't disapprove of it. And Jonathan Edwards, and I'm I'm talking sin, so it's all right for me to put myself in that list. Tim Bailey. And you should be the one that doesn't have to have your sin public. You should not have to ask forgiveness. You should not have to grant forgiveness. You should not have to be in a church where people will know that you put your... Pants on one leg at a time just like everybody else does. Your children should be the children that don't ever have to be rebuked. You think your children are any different? Scripture is inspired Word of God. You know why we know that? Because every single man of God and woman of God has their sins plastered across the pages of Scripture. There's only one man that doesn't, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect Lamb. And you know something, brothers and sisters, when we live together in such a way that we sin, really sin against each other, did you know it pleases God? You say, well, sin never pleases God. And I said, when we live together in such a way that we really sin against each other, I'm emphasizing the living together in such a way. Because if you go out of the church, you'll still be your same sinful, disgusting self, but you'll only have yourself to live with and you can't forgive yourself. It's only in the body of Christ you come back in and then you remember about the wicked that their feet are on a slippery plane. And in the house of God, we worship. And you look at your wife and you think, now this woman who had me be so nasty to her yesterday, today is content to stand next to me and to worship God And then you learn that God really does take your sins and remove them from you as far as the east is from the west. Because your wife testifies to that. And then I will. And then the elders will and the deacons will and the little children will be willing to be picked up in your arms. And you can be... A liar and a scoundrel and a proud man, you can lack any meekness. You can be aggressive. You can be hostile. You can stink. You can be dumb. You can be poor. You can be black. You can be white. You can be Muslim. You can be Mormon. You can be anything you want. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, He saves you to the church where you will continue to be all those nasty things and you will be forgiven and you will be loved. But if you're a proud man, you will not do it. And you will join the host of men who have found that they love their own selves more than they love God and they have exited the church. And you will be under another man who is a pastor who says, you know, Tim, I've confronted a lot of people and I found they get mad and leave and so I don't do it anymore. And that man and you will have an agreement. You will pay him So that He will lie to you. And there will be thousands of people who will be sitting next to you in the pews. And that's your choice. I asked you, do I love you? Some of you don't know I do. and Some of you I don't love yet because I don't know you. But those of you that know me, you know I love you. You know my home is open and you know I sin in my home. And you know this is what our church is. So you have a choice. You can either be in a church where this text makes sense. Brothers, if any of you is caught in a sin, you know, let those who are spiritual go and, and work on it. But be gentle and pray lest you yourself also fall into the sin. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Or you can choose to say, to hell with that. I don't want when I first became a Christian. If you don't mind, um, when I first became a Christian, um, I was a mess, a real mess. I still am. And I can't tell you all the ways I was a mess. For one thing, I was good looking when I was young. And I was a flirt. And now I was married. And you can't be a flirt and be married. And so I found I had to choose a completely different way to relate to the opposite sex. For another thing, I'd used drugs for a long time. And I still wanted to use them. For another thing, i had been involved in, in various forms of sexual immorality, and, and I didn't find that when, uh, when I came back to the Lord that those desires left me. I had a terrible depression problem. I had great anger. And in His mercy, God put Mary Lee and me in a prayer group, a small group. But you know what was true of that small group? I was the only sinner there. Everybody else had a clean life. You know, they were always praying about their Aunt Mabel's gammy leg. You know? Never any confession of sin. Never any request that they would ha- have the Lord free them from a sin. And every week I'd go to, and you'd have some, you know, Bible study, you know? And then they'd say, what prayer requests do we have? Time of worship, Bible study, what prayer requests do you have? And I'd sit there and I'd have steam coming out of my ears. And I'd think, here I am. And, and of course, I had long hair and a pierced ear. And so everybody knows he's the one that needs prayer. And I hated it. Because I knew the other people needed prayer as much as I did. I knew they were struggling with the same sins I was. And I always heard the voice of God saying to me, ask them to pray for you. And I'd say in my heart, no, I'm not going to do it. Why should they patronize me? Why should I have to humble myself in front of them? Why should I have to confess my sins when they're not doing it? And God would say to me, you ask them to pray for you and you confess your sins to them. If you want eternal life, discipline yourself to do what I'm telling you to do. And I'd say, but I'm saved! I don't need anything! I have the blood of Christ. And He Point out my sin to me and say, you want to live with those sins this next week? And so every single week, I would ask them for prayer for one more sin. And these were not just like hypothetical sins. Like, I think I may be a little bit discouraged next week. Would you pray for me that I'll be encouraged? No, Uh uh-uh. It was grunty. It was bloody. It was shameful. It was smelly. It was pukey. And I'd ask them to pray. And they'd lay hands on me and they'd pray for me. And my entire life has been that, and I am not going to go out. I'm not going to go out being a clean man for you guys, so that you feel like you know you'll have a pastor that lies to you. Well, you know he's 60. You know you shouldn't have to do that anymore. You know we want a pastor that we don't have to, you know, look at his sins. I tell you that the country's filled with pastors like that. You want them? I'll tell you where to go. But you will not have the kingdom of heaven. You will not have it because it isn't the church. And if you think that my emotion is because I'm aggressive and hostile, you're wrong. My emotion is because I grieve for the souls that have made shipwreck of their faith over the years that I have cared and loved for. And I say to you, you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Is it really too much to ask for you to be a sinner just like everybody else? Is that really too much to ask? If you go to the elders and you ask them to pray for you, as many of you do, you'll find those elders, will all of them tell you how they have that same sin? You say, no, no, not adultery. Oh yeah, adultery. You know, if any man looks at a woman with lust in his eye, he's committed adultery with her in her heart. So if if the big one's already there, what about all the small ones? Do you think the elders haven't struggled with jealousy, envy, strife, bitterness, anger, faithlessness, unbelief? What do you want to name? You think the elders haven't struggled with homosexuality? Oh, yeah, they have. You say, oh, no, 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 certainly not homosexuality. I say, do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says Jesus was tempted in most ways, like as we are, yet without sin. Now, have I quoted Scripture faithfully? Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And so when you go to elders, they're not Jesus. You can be certain that they have compassion and that they will love you and that they won't use this opportunity to talk behind your back about what a schmuck you are. Okay. Now, one final application. Can you name one other place in the United States of America where you can hear this? Are you going to hear this in the pages of Sports Illustrated? Even Alonzo Mourning, after he gets done talking about all the tragedies he's been through, after he wins the the, the you know the the, the NBA. Even Alonzo Mourning ends up talking about God, but then end up talking about how you have to have it here in your head. It was an unbelievable interview, those of you that saw it. But it all ends up with him in his head. Name me another place where truth is at the center of the fellowship. Where who you are is really known and really loved, just as you are. You know, is that what goes on at Nordstrom at the cosmetics counter? Is that what Hallmark is all about? Truthfulness? This is the Gospel. The Gospel is the only religion in the world that takes you as you are and says your sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Every single other religion is you scrabbling to get up higher. But here in God's house, you come as you are. And if you won't admit what you are, this is a place you can't come to. But if you will admit what you are, you will find that under the cross it's level. And there isn't a pecking order. There are officers, but that's because those of us who are spiritual need to gently correct you. Somebody has to do the nasty job. Alright? But the cross is the place where you will find that you're dealt with truthfully and you're received as you are. And so really, brothers and sisters, when Scripture presents us with this picture of the church, this is the most glorious picture that you could ever have because what it shows is the same way you came to Jesus as a sinner is the same way you'll live until you die. It's as a sinner. And you will be accepted and loved and embraced. And that's the Gospel through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. Imagine someone in China who decides that he would rather die than give up the church of Jesus Christ. Somebody in communism, Russia, Albania, Romania. Somebody in Sudan. And here we have all the freedom. And so many of us choose that the church is the one thing that we will abandon. The church is the bride of Christ. And the bride's dirty. But Christ is cleaning her up for the marriage feast of the Lamb. And that feast isn't here yet. We have a taste of it. But it's not here yet. Okay, I love you. And when I'm hard on you, it's because I love you. And you know that's true so don't reject me. And if you don't think I'm talking smart for a pastor, you go look at how intensely personal the Apostle Paul is saying things like that to the people he wrote. <laughs> I've gotten through birth pains for you, he says. That's even more intimate. Let's pray.